The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. We've been working through the book of John and we've been looking at Jesus revealed to us in different ways all throughout this book. And this morning we come to chapter 8, starting in verse 12 through verse 30, that happened at that feast. Before we get there, I need to say a word about why we're skipping immediately from chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12, missing some verses in the middle there. And as I do that, I'm going to provide a very brief explanation of why that is, and maybe in there there'll be some explanation as to how we got our English Bibles that you have in your hand. Please understand, this is going to be intentionally brief and shallow. It's an interesting subject, but it's not the main focus for this morning. So if you want to talk more about this later, please come up to me. I'd love to talk about it. But if you have your Bibles, you look at them, somewhere around the beginning of chapter 8, you'll probably notice something like some double lines or some brackets or um, some, a colon or a footnote or a, a note in the text, something like that. My Bible has uh, double brackets around 752. 753 down to 811, and it has a note in the text, and it has a footnote, all three. You see some combination of those things there in your Bible. What those are getting at, my, my note says, the earliest manuscripts do not include this section, and then it lists the verses, 753 down to 811. What those notes are getting at is, they're trying to explain a little bit about how this book has been translated. It was translated, it wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek, and scholars take the ordinary rules of ancient literature translation and all the, the rules of history that apply to everything else, including the Bible, and they take these rules and they go to the original Greek manuscripts and they look at all of them following the usual process. And what they find is that as you move back through history, coming closer and closer and closer to when John actually wrote this, probably in mid-80s A.D., as you move back, 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 those are the older manuscripts, more reliable because they're closer to John. As you go back there, what you find is that the Bible moves directly from 752 to 812. Of course, the numbers weren't there. The numbers were added much later for, to help us with referencing. So I'm using the numbers, but they weren't actually there. The Bible moves directly from, read, search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. 812, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. It's a nice transition. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but that's how it works as you're back here in the older manuscripts. And then as the scholars move on through time and they come to the more recent manuscripts, what they find is, hey, look, suddenly this story about the adulterous woman appears. My footnote in my Bible, perhaps in yours, says that sometimes it's inserted right here, sometimes the story's somewhere else. Scholars look at that and it's a dead giveaway. The story itself wasn't back here and is here in different places. The story was not part of John originally. I know that from this and other more complicated reasons. It's not part of the Gospel of John. It probably existed somewhere, and people are trying to figure out, where should we put this? Can we put this in the Bible somewhere? Can we add this in? And later somebody did. That doesn't mean the story didn't happen. We don't know that. John himself tells us later in the book that a whole bunch of other stuff happened that he didn't write about. So it may have happened, but that's beside the point. What John wrote 
is the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is the Bible. And the adulterous woman's story is not in John and not in the Bible. So I'm not going to treat it like the Bible. I'm not going to preach on it. That's why I'm moving on. But it's still left in your Bible because scholars and, and people who put together Bibles, you know, the, the editor of, of your particular copy, wanted to leave all the evidence on the table. doesn't want to appear like they're trying to hide something. They don't want somebody to come to it and say, hey, I heard about this story about the adulterous woman, and they took it out. They took it out of the Bible. Why'd they do that? I want to put it all on the table there so that we can have this kind of discussion and nothing would be hidden. So there it is. That's the reason. Let me get back to the Bible. I'm going to read chapter 8, verse 12 and following. And if, if you want to talk more about that later, as I said, that was pretty quick, pretty shallow. If you want to talk more about that, please do. Come up to me later. But I'm going to begin to read today's text, beginning in verse 12, and I'll read down through verse 30. 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And once you realize that 753 connects, 752 connects directly to 812, you see the transition there, and it's actually a rather smooth one. Back in chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, Jesus made a declaration connected to one of the ceremonies of the Feast of Booths. He, said, I, he talked about water. I'm the one who provides that spiritual thirst-quenching water. And then verses 40 and following recount the reaction to that. 
And then we have in verse 12 is yet another declaration related to another aspect of the feast, the lamplighting ceremony. It's not quite clear if this lamplighting ceremony was done every single night of the seven-day feast or if it was only done once. It was a pretty big deal. Jews all gathered together. They had this lamplighting ceremony, or perhaps we might call it a lamplighting party. That might be more accurate. It was a pretty celebratory event. On one night, they gathered together in the, in the court of the women. Remember, the temple is built with, with these concentric courts, the court of the Gentiles, court of women, court of men. So you've got the court of the women. They gather there, and they set up these huge lamps. They were, there are four of them described as, as great big lamps, probably oil-burning lamps, and they seem to have had, like, sub-lamps attached to them. So they lit these four lamps, and it was a great big light, a huge fire, really. And they pulled out the Levitical orchestra, and they, they danced, and they sang, and they rejoiced, and people brought their own torches. It was a rather large party, and it's said that the glow from this thing lit up the whole Jerusalem sky at the night. It was a pretty big deal. What was it about? Well, you remember basically what the Feast of Booths is. They lived in booths because they're tying, in, in their minds, they're tying back to the time of wandering in the desert when they lived in booths and tents and tabernacles and things like that. So the Feast of Booths is celebrating God's provision back then for them in the desert, God's provision for them right now as they live in the land, and it's anticipating God's provision for them in the future. Talked about this last week. Well, what are they doing here with this? Well, who led them back in the desert? When the Egyptians threatened them, when they needed to find water or food, when they were lost and wandering around, didn't know where the promised land was, who led them? Who guided them? Who stood between the Egyptians and them? Who held off the darkness, if you will? The Lord, and a cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. So at night... They gather together these huge torches and they dance and they sing and they celebrate around these lamps, the lamplighting ceremony, celebrating God, the Lord, who is our light and our salvation. And Jesus took advantage of that ceremony to again explain another aspect of himself, what he means to be for his people. He spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. I am it's the name of God again. Keeps bringing this up. Keeps speaking this way. It happens several times through this text. It's, we're going to talk more about that next week because it all kind of comes to a pinnacle in next week's passage. But he keeps saying this sort of thing and it prompts him to ask questions like later on, who are you? What are you talking about? But here he says, I am the light of the world. Follow me like you followed that pillar. Like you followed God through the wanderings in life. Follow me. You won't walk in darkness anymore. You will have the light that gives life. Another interesting connection he makes. Grabbing on something that exists in their history, something that they have ritually done for year upon year upon year, and he ties it to himself. And verse 28 says that he says all this while he is standing in the very same place where the ceremony happens. In the treasury, that is, where the treasures were given in the court of the women. It's an amazing connection pulling everything in, tying it to himself. But the Pharisees, verse 13, they don't really engage him on the substance of the statement. What they engage him on is his right to make the statement. They slip the issue. I'm the light of the world. Not, are you the light of the world or not? But 
Can you say that you're the light of the world? It's, it's a different question. That's what they challenge him on. You claim this about yourself. But somebody else has to validate that. Somebody else has to say that. They're thinking legal, court, law, proceedings. A man who witnesses about himself must be corroborated. Well, Jesus responds, hold on a minute. Hold on. Is it possible for a man who speaks about himself to speak the truth about himself? Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. You might not believe him, but it is possible for a man to speak about himself truthfully. And because actually we're talking about me, your whole idea of someone else validating it has a basic problem because, here's the issue, I am the only one who knows where I come from and knows where I'm going and knows who I actually am. I'm the only one here who's come down from heaven. You haven't. I'm the only one here who's going back to heaven. You're not. I'm the only one here who's God in the flesh. You're not. You don't know me. You can't corroborate what I'm saying. You don't know my father either. You can't corroborate what he says about me. There's a problem here. We've talked about this problem before. People sitting in judgment over Jesus. We're trapped in ourselves from our own perspective. He's bringing this up again. You all judge by appearances. How things look to you on the outside. That's a problem when it comes to judging me. You're biased. You're fallen people judging from a fallen perspective according to the flesh. And you can't see me. Rebukes it in them and then tacks on to the end. I don't judge like that either. That's what he means when he says I judge no one. I don't judge anyone like you do. The next sentence means, makes clear that he does judge somebody. He does judge in some way, just not like them. He's turning the tables here. They're judging and evaluating him, and he rebukes them for how they're judging him, and then starts to talk about how he judges. If I judge, I judge in a different way. Right, along, right in line with the Father who sent me. Here's what he means. In his being... In what he says, Jesus is judging. Kind of like a light that gets flipped on and exposes whatever's in the room. He's not judging in that he is sitting and executing the sentence. He's judging in that as he walks around and speaks, by contrast, he says, either verbally or in action, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. This is right. Everywhere he goes, he's a walking judgment. Because he holds so closely to the Father. That runs throughout this whole passage. Jesus and the Father tied together. Jesus speaking on the authority of the Father. Jesus saying what the Father says. Jesus judging as the Father judges. Throughout this passage, he's talking about we are together, he and I. You don't know him, you don't know me. But we're together. I'm at walking judgment. Didn't come the first time to sit in the seat of judgment and condemn. He came to seek and to save. But in order to seek and save, he has to make clear people need to be saved. He's going to talk about that in the next section, following on from verses 21. These verses, what continues on here, I'm going to skip over this for the sake of time, but what continues on here is this back and forth discussion. They circle around some familiar themes that we've seen already, some things we're going to talk about a little bit next week. They're going back and forth about Jesus' identity, Jesus' origin, who they are, what, what their stance is in relation to God. Back and forth about this. And at the end, after saying all these things, the, the passage kind of ends on a little bit of a high note. Verse 30. After speaking, many believed. 
That sounds good. At least they're not trying to arrest him or kill him. It's a good thing. But I hope that by this point in the book of John, when you read, many believed, that you kind of have this sort of waiting to see if there's another shoe to drop. Throughout the whole book, John makes plain that there is belief and there is belief. Which kind is this? Is this belief that's on the surface and is going to fade away? Or is this deep down rooted genuine belief? We'll have to see. Come back next week and it becomes clear. But at least it's not totally negative. Jesus said some things that caught some people's attention. What is he saying? I'm going to spend the majority of the time this morning focusing on the very first verse. His declaration, his, his pronouncement. His, his statement about who he is, what he means to be. And then the second point following after that will be how we're supposed to respond to it. Jesus wants us to see something about himself. John wants us to see something about Jesus. It should grab our attention. Draw you on towards belief. Be two points here. If I summarize them, put them together, it's a simple statement. If you take nothing away, take this away, please. Come to Jesus for light. Simple. Come to Jesus for light. I'm going to break that into two parts. First, the part about Jesus. This is clearly the most significant aspect of the passage. Verse 12, Jesus' opening statement. Jesus was sent as light the world. That's what, he, that's what he means. I am the light of the world. Jesus was sent to the world to be light for the world. Now remember what John means by the word world. When John talks about world, he doesn't mean the planet. doesn't mean even generically all the people on the planet. The word world is a moral word in the book of John. It's loaded. It is humanity fallen. Humanity in sin, in rebellion, rejecting God, cut off from Him, separated from righteousness, separated from hope and joy because of it. That's the world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is important to pause for a moment because that's who Jesus is talking to. I'm light for the world. So it's important for us to get kind of our minds around that just a little bit. If you're a believer, you're not in the world anymore in one sense, but we are still in the world. We still live here amongst fallen humanity. And all of us started there. The root of that is sin. Sin has wrecked everything. Not, not as bad as it could be, but not anywhere near as good as it could be either. Not by a long shot. You need to think about this for a second. I'm just going to ask you to think about it in one way. Think about all of the words in your vocabulary that would have no meaning if it wasn't for sin in the fall. As you think through these words, attach to them all the misery that comes from them. The word attack, death, wound, theft, Loss, bribe, assault, lie, abuse. could go on and on and on and on. Violence. 
Although a lot of those are related to violence, deception. Think of, I just listed, you know, six or eight words there. Think of all the misery loaded behind those words. There was a time when those words would mean nothing to you. Not a thing. There wouldn't be any referent for those words. You know what a referent is? The thing the word refers to? There wouldn't be any referent. You might have some intellectual understanding of what an attack would be if there ever had been one, but there hasn't ever been one, so it doesn't mean anything to you. That would be such a remarkably different world. You know how short the nightly news would be? Or how different the nightly news would be? Radically different place apart from sin if the world had never become John's world, humanity fallen. Radically different place. But that's happened. The fall has happened. People have rebelled. And because people have rebelled, the whole creation is twisted, harmed, and hurt. And that's where we live. What do we need for that? We need light. That all, that whole world, that's darkness. We need light. It's all, obviously he's using a metaphor here, light and dark. You can have the sun shining bright as day and it'd be dark. It's a metaphor. All of that, all those words, all those words mean that's darkness. The fallen world. It's evil. It's awful. It's confusing. It's frustrating. What do we need? Light. Is there any light coming, God? And we don't just need a little bit of light that kind of holds some of this at, by, at bay or insulates us for the moment. That's good to have that. But ultimately what we need is something, I'll continue to use the metaphor, light that eliminates this darkness. That fixes the fall. That corrects it. That reverses it. That overcomes it. That's the kind of light that we need. Is that kind of light coming? God, all through the Scriptures, has threaded in His promise, yes, it is. It is coming. We talked about some of these things already. When, he, when, he is a, when He's a pillar of fire leading people through the darkness, there's a type there. He's showing something concretely about what the future would be like. He's saying, I am your light. I am your salvation. I'll save you from the Egyptians. I'll save you from hunger and famine. I'll lead you to the land of rest. Follow me. It says that explicitly in Psalm 27. Or Psalm 119. I'll give you my word to guide you. To show you where the rest is. To show you how to meet with me. It'll be a lamp to your feet and a light for your path. It'll guide you home. Well, those things are good. Those things are good, but they're only temporary. Those are, that's the light within the darkness. Is the light ever going to overcome the darkness? Is that ever going to happen? That's what I need. I'm looking somewhere for some hope here. Is it going to happen? Yes. The prophets point ahead to the future. Still further on, when a time is coming, when the light will fully overcome the darkness. Zechariah talks about it. Chapter 14. Isaiah talks about it. Listen to this passage from Isaiah 60. Beginning in verse 18. Listen to what Isaiah talks about when he says when he talks about the day, the day that is to come. He says, violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your border. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day. 
Nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. Not the sun, not the moon. That's not where light's going to come from. Here's why. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning, sorrow, mourning shall end. Quote it again in the book of Revelation. It's a powerful statement. Isaiah is looking ahead. Listen to verse 19 there. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God your glory. It's a parallel statement. The Lord and God, everlasting light, glory. Two things are paralleled there. On this day to come, the Lord Himself becomes something. He becomes everlasting light. That is, their glory. What they revel in. That which shines on them and over them. Fills their heart with wonder and joy and praise and celebration. Life. Real, genuine life. And the Lord becomes their light. This floods over them. Light shines on them and covers them. And covers all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. Their glory, the Lord Himself. Imagine that. The beauty of God. Another, word, another way you could translate that word glory is beauty. The Lord Himself will be your light. God will be your beauty. The beauty of the Lord Himself cover you, will flow over you to your joy, not to your doom. If the glory of the Lord were to flood over us, still fallen as the world, it would doom us. But it will flow over us to our joy and violence and devastation and destruction and mourning will be no more but instead salvation and praise. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. It's a good thing. Fullness of light. Fullness of life. The light that gives life. Light that gives life. Longed for. And the people longed for it. And so at the Feast of Booze, they lit these lamps every year. And they celebrated how God had done part of that already. And they looked forward to when that day would come. When's Isaiah's day coming? When's Zechariah's unique day when the sun doesn't go down? When is that coming? When? Jesus stands up and says, I am, the name of the Lord, I am the light of the world. I am the light that gives life. Come to me. He stands up and he says that. It must have been stunning. That day, that, that day that Isaiah is talking about, the day that Zechariah, etc., etc., the day they're talking about, it has dawned. It's not here fully with the sun starting to come up. I sat in my office the other day and I watched the sun come up. I can't see the mountains, then I can see a little bit of the mountains, then I can see the sun. It comes up bit by bit by bit by bit. What he's saying is the day has dawned now and it's one day coming in fullness. It's here follow after me. You come and you dance around and you celebrate the, around these lamps. Come, dance around, celebrate around me. I'm going to light up the sky. 
the city of God. You see what he's doing here again and again and again last week? Water pouring ceremony? That's pointing to me. Lamplighting ceremony? Also pointing to me. Throughout the whole book. Sabbath circumcision? Me. Promises of Jacob? Me again. New and better temple? Me again. Again and again and again and again. Everything you can think of, all roads lead to Jesus. Everywhere. You know how in Sunday school, kids' Sunday school, the joke is that whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. That's true. Whatever the question is, the answer is Jesus. John's making that really clear. The conclusion of every story, the fulfillment of every promise, the end of every longing, the satisfaction of every hope, Jesus. But don't say it like that. Jesus. Him. Everything points to Him. Always. He is the end of everything and the beginning of everything. Jesus. The one sent by the Father, speaking the authority of the Father. Holding out, yes, judgment, but also hope. A hope for glory and light that chases away and eliminates darkness. Jesus. That's who He is. What a glorious offer this is. He stands up and He says, I am the light of the world. I'm talking to the world. I will be light for you. Come follow me and you won't walk in darkness. And that gets to the second point. What should our response to that be? Well, you get a clue from that verse. The second most important aspect of this passage has to do with how we respond to that. So don't shy away from, but instead come to the light. Follow after him. Chase after him. Embrace him. Don't let go. Jesus gets at this positively and negatively. We already saw the positive part where he holds out this hope of glory to wash over you, light to chase away the darkness. That's the positive aspect, and that should be attractive, but he also gets at this negatively. This might be a little more sobering. You're going to press the hard button here. He says this three times in the latter part of the passage, in 21 and then twice in verse 24. Straight up, you're going to die in your sins. That's not easy to say, it's not easy to hear, so he repeats it three times to make sure that we got it. You're going to die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. If you do not believe in me that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's not sitting in the seat and executing the judgment, but he is judging. He's not saying, you're pretty good. I'm okay. You're okay. Not bad. Keep up the good work. You're going to die in your sins. Your everlasting life is hanging in the balance. Right there. You walk in darkness, and if you never come to the light, you remain walking in darkness, and you will die. Jesus is real clear about this. And I, I beseech you, do not judge him by earthly standards. Do not judge him according to the fleshly heart. The natural reaction is not to say, 
the natural human fallen reaction is not to say, how is that? I don't want that. What do I do? The natural sinful human fallen action is to say, how dare you say that? Who do you think you are? And that's what they go on with. You're not qualified to give that testimony. You're not qualified to say that you're the light. You're not qualified to pass the judgment. Who are you? Who is your father? Where do you come from? He's been over this ground before. They should know. Perhaps they've removed those things from the possible answers in their heads. They're not hearing him anymore. How dare he be so narrow and exclusive? Where does he get the right to say that? Well, from the Father who's given it to him to tell us, to be very clear about. He came to seek and save the lost, but he, as I said, he has to make clear who the lost are and what happens to the lost. And only to the lost, those who know they're lost, can he then offer hope. I'm, I'm here to be light for the world, but you've got to own up to the fact that you're the world. Morally, you're cut off from me. You must come to the light. You're not in the light right now. It's making that clear. It's, it's hard to hear that, I know. Please, listen, there is only one way. But gloriously, there is a way. Gloriously, there is a way. Come to Him. Follow Him. Believe in Him. And you won't die in your sin. That's good news. Hard, but good. Obviously, he has that to say to the world, to, to many of his listeners right there in that audience. Maybe some listeners here in this audience. So please, listen, hear him, I, I beg you, for your own good. I want to move for a couple minutes, though, and talk to the majority of us here who already are believers, already have come to him. What does that have to say to us? We too need to be careful to not shy away, to not stand off from Him, but to instead come to and follow after and press on after Him. We who are believers, we unfortunately tend to think of this kind of talk about, like, come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. We tend to think of it as an event, as a point, like crossing a line, like getting on a bus, something like that. We're, I, I wasn't, and then I did, so I am. That's how we kind of tend to think about this. And I keep pointing out that John keeps pointing out that false belief exists. John, throughout his grammar, is constantly making, this aware, making us aware of this point. False belief exists. You must continue to believe, believe, believe. Not believe back here, but believe there and today and tomorrow, on and on. It's a constant belief. That's what genuine belief is like. I keep, I keep saying that. But I suspect for some of us, we still kind of miss an important point. If, if you only think of it as like crossing a line, you might, you might be hearing John to say, or hearing me to say, what you're supposed to do is cross the line or get on the bus and then stay on the bus, stay on the bus, stay on the bus, stay on the bus. Don't get off, don't get off, don't get off. Don't cross back, don't cross back, don't cross back. You might be hearing it like that. But let me paint a slightly different picture to elaborate on another angle on this. You and a couple of other people get lost in the woods, let's say. One evening, you're out there and you get lost, so you're wandering around in the darkness. It's a little chilly out there, kind of dangerous, so you, you need to find your way home. So the group of you, you start crashing through the woods, hoping to find a trail or a road or something that will lead back. 
As you're wandering around, suddenly you, off to the right, you see a small dot, a little pinprick of light. At least you think it might be light. It seems like it could be light. So you call everybody's attention to it. Hey, look, over that thicket over there, just kind of right there, I think there's some light right there. And they look and, and you discuss, and maybe it's a light, but maybe it's just a reflection from a star or something. I, um, I don't know. Most people aren't persuaded. And they continue on, they're firm in their resolve to head off this way to the left, looking for a road. But you and another friend, you, I, I think that is light. So you head towards the thicket, towards the light. You head off. And eventually you reach that thicket. It's the only thing you could see silhouetted against the sky. You get there, and in the dark it's difficult. It's a challenge. The, the little, bit of, little bitty light, it's bigger now, because you're closer to it. But the way through the thicket is hard. It's scratching you. You don't see all the branches. They poke your face. And your friend eventually says, eh, this, I don't think this is right. I think there's probably got to be another way. I can still hear the people crashing off over here out of the left somewhere. I'm going to head back and join up with them. You can go on if you want. But you're convinced this is the way to go. And so you keep pressing through and you fight through the thicket. And then you go over a small rise and past some evergreens and through a shallow stream. The, the way is still hard. But the light grows larger every minute. Now it's a square. Now it's a couple of different squares. Windows in a building. You're getting closer and closer, and eventually you enter into a clearing, and there are little cabins all surrounding a central hall that is ablaze with light. The sound of laughter and music and warm-smelling food is coming out of the building, and you come in, and you're greeted by a whole bunch of people you've never met, but you think you already know. They take you forward to the hearth, and you meet the host, and you're fed, and you're clothed, and you're cared for. You come home, finally. Now, somewhere back in the woods, you crossed a line. And when you crossed that line, you were all in. I'm not going back to join the people who are crashing around over here in the darkness. This is the way. I'm all in. I'm committed. But if you'd stopped there, wherever there was, you're committed, but you're not home yet. There's a goal. There's a center. That's where the light is. That's where the host is. That's where the warmth is. The center. That's what you're aiming towards. Stopping out here somewhere by the stream or by the evergreens and saying, I've ascertained that that is the light. There is home. This is good enough. Don't think like that. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be pressing on towards the center. That's what the continual process of following, if you follow me, if you remain with me, if you abide with me, these are John's words throughout this book, Jesus' statement, follow me, all in the present tense, keep doing it, follow me. You follow, you press on towards home. I'm going to use a different word. Christ-likeness. Jesus in the fullness of His glory. You move on towards that. That's what genuine belief looks like. That's the work of God in the hearts of genuine believers. Always at the same pace, on the same path? No, of course not. 
genuine believers, we walk quickly, we, we run, we stop and keep looking in the same direction. We turn off, get confused, twist it around a little bit, sit down for a break. We all do that. Me too. But you're moving on. You're progressing. Different paces, but that's the goal. Press on towards that for which He called you heavenward. Grab it. Keep reaching for it. Believe and keep believing. Follow and keep following. You have to cross the line somewhere. Crossing the line is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. Press on. What, what does this mean? Very practically, my life. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I struggle to press on towards the great hall in the middle. I'm as convinced as I can be that that's where the light is. I've crossed the line somewhere. I'm as convinced as I can be of that. I'm not there yet. I'm pressing on towards that. But I stop. I take detours. I get lost sometimes, it seems. I'm struggling with that. I mean, right now, not at this very moment, but today, yesterday, the day before, I'm struggling with that. The branches hit me in the face as I'm walking through the dark woods. So what do you do? Pick up your Bible and you go to it and you cry out, God, show me something. And, and I'm, this morning, I'm reading the Bible this morning. I, I mean, I had a hard day yesterday and a hard night last night. I'm, I'm wrestling with this and I'm reading the Bible this morning. Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You've, you've drawn me closer to the light before. Do it again, please. Wash over me some of your glory, please. I'm lost. My feet are stuck in the muck here. I can't even see what it is. Help. There are many, me included, who say, who will show us some good? God. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In the next verse, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And I sit there and I think, how interesting that I would read that this morning. I read Psalm 4 this morning. Didn't know it had the word light in it. Didn't know what it was talking about. Read that and something comes to me. The light of his face, what the psalmist wants. The light of your face, shine that upon me and give me more joy than they have when they have all this stuff. It's not, God, give me more wine and bread. They have plenty of that. Give me more joy than they have when they have plenty of that. Give me the light of your face. Show yourself to me. And I read the next verse. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And all this turmoil inside, and I look at that and I say, in peace, the psalmist here lies down and sleeps. Why? For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The little glimpse of God's face. God is a God who surrounds this person surrounds me so that I can lie down in safety and in peace. Praise God.
Safety and peace in all the circumstances of life? No. Safety and peace in here. Who knows what will happen in the circumstances? Shines light into here and promises me a day that is coming when the sun and the moon are not going to be the light, but God himself will be full light and there will be no darkness whatsoever at all anymore. Praise God. Brothers and sisters, press towards the center. Don't be happy having crossed into the circle. Follow. Follow. There is the light of life, the light that gives life, the face of God shining on you. Press after Him. Pick up your Bible and cry out to Him. Don't give Him any rest until He shows up. Pray. Seek after Him. Draw together with one another and do this. I'm just like you. I need to do this every day. And when I don't, I suffer. But when I do, sometimes He comes. Do likewise. For your own good, you'll love it. Seek Jesus for light. He's the light of the world. If you follow him, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have light. you have life. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.